prophet was correct when he said, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should even desire him. Now take it from me, an observer, a Jewish observer, and watching the life of Christ, and I got to tell you from my perspective, I, uh, I would agree. There was really nothing about Jesus that was all that attractive. I mean, if you think about the start of his life, the start of his life was in a manger, out in a barn with a bunch of animals to peasant parents. Not exactly what you would consider a royal beginning. He was a no-name kid from a no-name town. Nazareth? Who in the world comes from Nazareth? And he had a father who was just a poor carpenter. It tells me that his business wasn't all that great. His mother was rumored to have a child out of wedlock, which would have been Jesus. And so he was the bastard child. You know, it's hard to shake that social stigma. <laughs> Especially in our culture. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus grew up, his brothers and sisters thought he was nuts. They thought he was absolutely crazy. He was teaching one day, and they decided as a committee to come and gather Jesus because, quote, they thought he was out of his mind. Now, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, you got to admit, it really wasn't successful at all. It was a failure. Sure, he began well. And he had some pretty cool miracles that he did that nobody could explain. I mean, who can explain calming the storm? Who can explain the feeding of 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and fish? Who can explain him casting out demons and healing everybody that came to him? And who can explain how he took a little girl who was dead and rose her up from the dead. Sure. Those are hard to explain, but what did it get him? I mean, think about it. Everybody in the inn rejected him. The religious authorities who really knew the, the word of God, they're the authorities. They said he was no good, that he had to go. All the crowds that hung out with him eventually left. And the only people that hung out with them were the outcasts of society. Oh, by the way, the crowds did return again. Yeah, at the end of his ministry, only to say, crucify him, crucify him. That prophet that I mentioned, he said this also. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow. And familiar with suffering. Like one whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not, not. You know why he wasn't esteemed? It's because he had the wrong message. He had the wrong approach. You know, if this Jesus would have taken a political approach, he would have been successful. He had the 12, he had the crowds, he would have had me. 
if he would have just taken a political approach. I mean, the time was right. Rome, the, the tyranny of Rome was oppressive. The people were taxed to death. And they had lost one too many sons and daughters to the brutal form of Roman crucifixion. See, had a son of Israel arisen out of the ashes of poverty, they would have taken up arms. I would have taken up arms. But instead, Jesus has a message of love your neighbor as yourself. And love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Okay, it's the Jewish Shema. I knew it growing up. But this isn't what we need. We need somebody to lead an insurrection. We need somebody to overthrow. And Jesus gives us just sayings that are good for a postcard. You know, he had a Messiah complex, you know. He said to people that he was the only way in which you would get to the Father in heaven. Now, it is time to come and collect him because he's crazy. The end of his ministry was probably the capstone of his failure. I mean, think about it. This Jewish carpenter is tried as an enemy of the state of Israel. He's convicted. Where did the closest people that were, that were near him, where did they go? They ran. One of them sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. He was tried. He was guilty. He went to the cross where he belonged. And you know what? On the cross, he said to his God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I suppose there was a silver lining to his ending. Beside him, on either side, were criminals like him. And one of them, they had this little dialogue, and at the end of the dialogue, Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. He had a convert. Paradise? Really? If I was simply, or you and I at that time, or just an observer of Jesus, it's very possible that we could come to the same conclusion as the person in that monologue. We could come to that conclusion just based on an outside perspective. If you kept Jesus at arm's length. But what's interesting is those that understood Jesus closely they understood, especially after the resurrection, this incredible grand narrative and plan that God was carrying out and unfolding in Christ. And today, as we're going to be looking at the scriptures, we're actually going to see the victorious side of the resurrection that applies to you and I. 
This comes down to a very practical level, and I am so excited that we get to study it together because we're going to be looking at the victorious gifting that God has given us and the, the background, the cost of giving each and every one of us a spiritual gift. And it was the outcome of actually his successful ministry of living a perfect life, of pointing people to the Father and dying on the cross for the sins of all humanity. Let's pray that God would use this time in an incredible way. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, you allow us to understand things from your word that are just maybe sometimes too marvelous for us to even comprehend fully. But Lord, I pray, Father, that as we go to your word today, I pray that you would help us to have an understanding of the victorious giftings that you have given us, that you did this so that you could empower, empower us as your church, and that you are continuing on this ministry that you started that has continued on for over 2,000 years, and that we have the joy of participating in that. And I pray that you would open our eyes to this reality. I pray, Father, where we need to be encouraged, we would be encouraged today. I pray that where we need to be uh, rebuked or corrected, that you would do that. But I pray that you would do something wonderful in our midst. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, if you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 16 in Ephesians chapter 4. But let me set the context. The Apostle Paul is the writer of this book. And when he wrote the book of Ephesians, he wrote it as a thesis of what the church is to be about. And by the time he gets to chapter 4, what he wants is for the body to understand how they were victoriously equipped with spiritual gifts. And he's going to deal specifically with spiritual gifts dealing with leadership within the church. And he does this so that we can understand how important it is that we would be equipped as a body of Christ. And so I want you to keep in mind that this is also that the body of Christ can be built up and strengthened. In verse 7, Paul is going to instruct how God has given the greatest empowerment gift or tool that man has ever known. And we're going to see that starting in verse 7. So take a look at verse 7. This is the greatest empowerment tool that God has given us ever. He says in verse 7, but grace was given to each of us, each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower earthly regions, or the region, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now Paul starts off here talking about grace. It's the second word into the sentence in verse 7. But grace. And the word grace, he wants us to understand that the, the measure of our spiritual giftedness comes out of that grace. Look at what he says. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's 
gift. So there is a gift that flows out of grace. Now what's interesting, if you're keeping notes, I've got, you probably had a handout, you will see that there is a word called grace and the Greek word for it is charis. Now in this Greek word the, the, of charis, that it, it basically means God's riches. It's what God has given, what he bestowed in Christ. But the word for spiritual gift is charisma. So you can literally see that the root word of charisma, our spiritual gift, is grace. So literally, our spiritual gifts flow out of the grace of God. Now many people have used the acrostic of God's riches at Christ's expense. There's a blank on your bulletin you can, or in your notes. You can fill that in. God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, that is a great acrostic, but Paul's illustration here, I think, is even better than that kind of acrostic because he paints a picture for us of the cost by which we got our, we received our spiritual gifts. And he does it by ripping a verse right out of Psalm 68, verse 18. And he says this. This is the verse he's quoting here. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now you and I are like, well, what does that mean? Well, this was a psalm of victory. It was a picture of a king that came back from battle who had been victorious in his battle. And so as he comes back into the city, the people of that city are lining the streets and there is like this hero's welcome to the king and to his army. And behind them is a parade of captives and all the spoils of that war that the people could see. And so they are parading themselves through town to show that God, or to show that the king had been victorious. Now, as the king made his way through town, he would go to his palace. And once he was at his palace, he would then ascend the steps. The, the word ascend is very important here. He would ascend his steps to the throne. And when he reached the throne, he would then distribute the gifts from the plunder of war. And he would give it to his generals. He would give it to his soldiers. And he would give it to his people that stayed back and protected the city. You see, everybody, even though they weren't in the body they were, or, or in the battle, they were victorious because of this gift that was given to them. The gift, the spoils of war, was a direct emblem of the grand victory that had taken place. Now think about this. It would have been absolutely unheard of if this gift was abused or rejected. It would have been absolutely unheard of for it to be abused or rejected because it came at such a cost. It came through the blood of men who died to, to win the victory. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is now in Ephesians. He has taken this victory psalm and he inserts Jesus Christ into it. 
And so when he says in the passage that he ascended far above all the heavens, Paul is clearly inserting Jesus as the victorious king who goes to his thrones, his throne. And his, he goes to his throne after his death, burial, and resurrection, and he's going to give gifts to men as a sign of that victory. Now, before that happened, he paraded through the universe to show the spoils of war. And if we reverse engineer it even more, it says in the passage that he descended before he ascended, meaning that Christ came down in humility to the earth. It was very intentional that he would be born in a manger. It was very intentional that he would be from a no-name town. It was very intentional that he would be rejected by his own family. It was very intentional that he would be rejected by the religious community who would eventually put him to death. It was very intentional that he said that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It was very intentional. And it was intentional that he died alone on the cross because he and he alone was the one that was going to be the sacrifice for our sins and the sins of all humanity. He was the only one that could pay the price and I believe between his death and resurrection, it says in our passage that he had descended to the lower earthly regions. It is a reference to a place known as Hades. Hades was a place in the, in the Old Testament times as a place for good and bad. And if you looked at, I believe it's Luke 16, there's a story of Abraham's bosom. And Abraham's bosom is in Hades, he's in, uh, but he's on the paradise side. And there are those that are in torment. And Jesus descends to the lower earthly regions, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And he pre preaches to the spirits now in prison. What was he preaching? That God was victorious. That he, had, he is going to conquer death. And as a symbol of that, I believe that he took the people in paradise and they were the captives that he led through the universe to display his, victor his victory over death. Now you say, Steve, that is absolutely crazy. I've never heard of such a thing. Well, look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. It'll be on the screen. After stating that Jesus nailed our sins to the cross, we are told this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. He's talking about the authorities in the spiritual realm. He showed the universe of, of the spiritual realm that he was victorious. And he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over by the cross. See, the church, church, the implication of these four, four verses is startling in its impact on us. If we truly understand this, we will never again take our giftings for granted. You see, our gifts are the spoils of Calvary. These gifts have been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. It cost him his life. 
And now Jesus, the head of the church, sits enthroned, praying and interceding for us. Why is he interceding for us? Because we are the ones that are carrying on the mission of God. We are the ones that are advancing the kingdom as we sang about earlier. We are the ones that are to be engaged and God has given gifts to each and every single person so that you can engage in the battle and that you are equipped. This is the greatest empowerment ever known to man. What God has done for us. Wow. So here's my question. Does this understanding give you incentive to know your gift? It should. Because there's some of us that will say, man, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. This is why we're doing this series called Gifted, because we want you to understand. So in this passage, after giving that wonderful illustration to show us how God has empowered us with gifts, he's then going to talk about the gifts of the church, and so the, the gifts specifically of leadership. Now, Paul is going to list five critical gifts now, the reason that they're critical is because leaders are to equip others. Our job is to empower others, and we'll see that in the verse I'm about to read. The reason we want that to happen is God wants to broaden the leadership network. So let me help you understand what I'm talking about in terms of leadership network. What happens, what ha when this happens, when the leadership network is broadened, it expands the victories as well. Because each person that is a leader gets work done. So you're saying, well, how do I know if I'm a leader? Are you working? If you're working, you're a leader. If you're not working, you're not a leader. But someday, my goal is that every single person would understand the giftedness that they have so that they can work diligently in that gift and be the leader that God has designed you to be in the sphere of life that you're in. Nobody else has your circle of responsibility. I use that phrase, circle of responsibility, quite often. I know you're probably sick of it, but I'll continue to use it because nobody else has your circle. I can't come and be a teacher at Hoover High School. I can't come and be a teacher at Jackson. I can't come and, and be a nurse or a doctor. You definitely don't want that. I can't come wherever your field is. I can't be a part of that circle. I have my own circle. And every single person has a circle of responsibility. And some of your spiritual gifts are to operate within the body. But believe me, they enable you also to operate in a supernatural way outside the body as well. So here are the five gifts that he gives. Verse 11. And he gave some to be apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. The word shepherd is also uh, can be stated as pastor. And why does he give it? To equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body. Now this morning, I've covered these gifts at other times in the last two weeks, but I want to give them in a practical way so that you could remember them in terms of their function, every one of these have a function within the church today. The apostle on your notes is the one who is sent. 
He is the one who has sent. This is the person who is the emissary of a vital message to tell other people. In modern day terms, it's a missionary. It's a missionary who is sent to extend the gospel to new communities where churches need to be planted. I believe this person is a church planter. By nature, this person is a risk taker. And I will tell you that because of the multifaceted ways in which this gift operates, that there's a little bit of all these five gifts that we're going to talk about that the apostle uh, uh, is it partakes in. It doesn't mean that he is gifted in all, all five areas. Uh, he's not like the super person, but he does have to be a teacher. He does have to shepherd. He does have to uh, evangelize. He has to do all of these things in some ways. This person loves to go into unknown territories. He loves to frame up something from nothing. He is the entrepreneur. This person is your high-energy visionary who instinctively knows what to do. Now, as we're going through these, it's okay for you to think to yourself, is that true of me? Is this who I am? You don't have to be a full-time person to be more in the apostolic type of makeup. There are people that are business owners that very much have this kind of apostolic makeup. They just haven't used it necessarily. They might. That they haven't used it necessarily for the kingdom. Hopefully they will. Here's the second one. Prophet. This is the one who knows. Knows the truth. Now I want to give clarity. There's a difference between an Old Testament prophet and this New Testament function of a prophet. In the Old Testament, the prophet had two functions. It was to foretell and it was to uh, it was to foretell and it was to uh, forthtell. What's the difference? Foretell means that you predict the future. And there was a, a, a very strict policy, so to speak, of what a prophet, if you were truly a prophet. You had to be 100% in your, in your corrections. Otherwise, you stoned the guy. Okay? He had to be, he foretelled, he could foretell the future. But the prophet also was a forth teller in that he would tell truth to the people. He became, in a sense, a revivalist. Guys, this is where we're at. This is where we need to go. And you're out of bounds. You need to repent. You need to come to God. You need to come to this place of obedience. So this is where the parallel is in the New Testament. The New Testament is the preacher that is the fourth teller. He is the one who likes to bring people along and say, let's not stay where we were. Let's move along and move forward into a place of obedience where God can have his blessing upon us. This person provokes people through questions. He brings the word of God down on a very applicable level. That's the prophet. Now the evangelist. This is the one who shares. This is the person who, who loves making the gospel message so simple and understandable. He just has this, un, he or she has this uncanny way of being able to do this. Now please note for this person, 
People are his focus, not strategies. Maybe the apostle prophet is more focused on strategies, but the evangelist is constantly people. And you know what? This evangelist has the furthest reach in that there is nobody that they can't reach out to. If, it, if it's breathing, if it's walking, they're witnessing to it. And they cannot understand why other people in the church aren't doing the same thing as they do. And so they fulfilled the purpose of being a thumb in the back to the body of Christ because they push us on to share our faith as they do. The fourth person is the shepherd. This is the one who cares. This gift bears God's mercy to his people. Like an actual shepherd, they look after sheep by caring for them, protecting them, mending them, disciplining, guarding them. Now, this gift requires a lot of patience. It's often said the person with this giftedness is married to the church. They, they come alongside in patience. They have tenacity. There's an availability. There's a sense of mercy and compassion, and yet they're willing to speak the truth as well. This person doesn't want anyone to be left out. They're always they're always there when trouble strikes and they have this way of entering into your pain and making you feel like they understand exactly what you're going through. And finally, there's the teacher. This is the one who instructs. This gift focuses on explaining the truth of the gospel. Now, there's a spectrum of teachers. There is the scholastic side and there's the creative side. And it doesn't matter which side they're coming from. Both love to teach the, 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 uh, the truth of God's word. This person lives to strengthen and encourage other believers. They're not happy until God's word has been clearly communicated. When they study the scriptures, they're going after one thing. They want the author's original intent so that they can explain that to you. For them, truth is essential. Uh, discipline is necessary and clarity is their goal. Now I'm going to give you a practical way for you to remember these five gifts. Raise up your left hand, please. Okay. Now notice your left, your thumb. It should, unless you have arthritis, should be able to reach to all the other gifts. This is the apostle. He has a little bit of all the gifts, okay? And then we have the prophet. What's he doing? This is the way. This is the way. He's pointing you to the, to the way in which you should go. Now the evangelist is the one with the furthest reach. And then the, the pastor or shepherd is married to the church. And the teacher is always going to itch your ear with truth. Always going to itch your ear with truth. Yeah, itch somebody next to you. Uh, you might not want to do that right now. So uh, when you think about these five giftings and the functions within the church... You, you, that might be a way for you to remember. Here's what I want you to know. At Mission View, when we started Mi Mission View Church, my goal is that all five of these functions would be true of us. And I believe that uh, to some degree that that has happened. I think we have some weaknesses in our church. I tend to be the framer. I love the visionary stuff. I love going into the unknown. I love risk-taking. So 
I'm more of kind of the apostolic type of mindset and the, the prophet, the, the one who wants to get us from here to there. And there are others within our leadership team that have the other gifted, giftings with, that, that are given there. I believe probably our weakness is that we need more evangelists. I would love to discover who in this body has the gift of evangelism. I know uh, Chris Dorfler has the gift of evangelism. If you're around him for any length of time, you realize that. And so this is something that I would love to see more of. I want to identify shepherds within our church because, and shepherds, again, it's not a full-time thing, and it could be male or female. They're the people that are going to enter into your pain. They're going to come alongside of you and help you. And I want to make sure those people are in the right place. So here's the question to think about. Is there a leadership gift that I've just given that you identify with? If so, how are you developing and using that gift? Paul closes out the passage by giving us the goals of empowerment. He basically states very clearly, here's what needs to take place. And he says this uh, in verse 13. He starts with goal number one, and I call it to be unified in the faith. If you're keeping notes, to be unified in the faith. Verse 13, he says, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, there's two words that stand out, faith and knowledge. The word faith is the core of what we believe about Jesus Christ. He wants us all to have a core knowledge of Christ. He wants us to understand that Jesus is fully God. If you understand that one concept and believe it with your heart, that separates you from all cults. Because cults do not believe that Jesus is God. He is fully God who entered in humanity through the miracle of, uh, of a virgin birth. And he lived a perfect life, a sinless life, to die for our sins. And he rose from the dead on the third day. If you understand that, you have the core of our faith. By the way, if you want to look at some of the other core doctrines that Mission View holds to, if you just go to our webpage under About and scroll down, you'll see our doctrinal statement. I would encourage you to make sure that we're united in the faith in these core doctrines. But he also says that we would, and he says, and that we have the, attained to the knowledge of the Son of God. The Son of Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. What he's talking about is that we are entering into a relationship with Christ, that we're diving into the deep embrace of Christ that he wants to have with each one of us through a day-to-day -day walk with him. In this goal, we willingly submit ourselves to him. Now here's the deal. The enemy knows how to keep us out of a relationship with Jesus. Because this world is busy, 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 busy. And we have so many pressures upon us, so many demands in our life. And sometimes we just look back at the week and say, I haven't had time for Christ at all. Just understand that that will never change. And what God wants of us is to develop these disciplines so that we can have that solitude so that we can have time of reflection with Christ. He wants that 
because it's the key to us being unified in having a faith and a knowledge in the Son of God. Here's the second goal that Paul gives us. He says to become a man. Now look at this. To measure manhood to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Now in a traditional view of manliness, a, some of you women are thinking, I don't qualify for this. Well, just listen. In a traditional view of manliness, a guy is somebody that moves from childhood to doing manly things. He's courageous. He's loyal. He's, uh, he has strength. He has innovation. These are things that mark manliness. If you really want to know how to be a manly man, I would encourage you to get instructions from where all good instruction comes from. YouTube. <laughs> the art of manliness. Just look it up. I learned it this week. I discovered it. It was incredible. You learn classics of why we carry pocket knives. How you throw a pocket. Pocket knife throwing. A man's code of honor. How to pick a lock. Isn't that a manly thing? And of course, the outdoorsman manly workout. Taking a log and doing your squats. There's nothing better. But fortunately, this isn't the manliness that's being talked about. The manliness that's being talked about is a move to maturity. It's to all men and women, students. God wants us to move to a place of maturity. And notice that it's not the knife kind, throwing kind of maturity. It's that we become more like Christ. That we become to the measure of Christ. 1 John 2.6 says that we are to walk in the same manner as Christ walked. What's that mean? It means that we're willing to wash people's feet. It means that we are allowing the little children to come to us. And we love them. It means that we come alongside of those that are in distress and we comfort them. It means that we love our neighbor, including our spouse. This is the second goal of empowerment, that we become like Christ, not only study Christ, but that we become like him. And then the third goal is to gain stability. He wants the body of Christ to be stable. Notice what he says. So that we no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but by human cunning and by the craftiness and deceitful schemings. Now whether we realize it or not, we are surrounded by doctrine. Doctrine just simply means teachings or beliefs. And we are surrounded by the doctrine of our culture. And I will tell you that some people within the church are driven by the doctrine of culture rather than the doctrine of Christ. See, the doctrine of Christ is not only going to affect our actions, it's going to affect our belief systems. Let me give you an example our culture says that you can be whatever gender you want to be. But God says that he created one male and one female. Our culture says that you can sleep together 
before marriage. In fact, it's normal. Everybody does that. You sleep together before marriage. But God says that we should wait so that it's within the bonds of marriage. Our culture says whatever sexual orientation feels right to you is okay. But God said that he created man and woman to live in a heterosexual relationships within the bonds of marriage. Our culture says that it's okay to self-medicate yourself with weed or with whatever else you desire. But God says that your body, if you've given your life to Christ, that your body is not your own. You don't have your body just to do with it whatever you want. You belong to God. Therefore, our bodies are to be treated with honor. Friends, we could go on and on about culture. And if we live, but I'll tell you this, if we live according to the cultural doctrines, then we will be blown here and there and tossed back and forth because that doctrine constantly changes. It constantly changes in our world. But what we need to do is gain stability from understanding the mind and heart of Christ. And that becomes our steadfast. This becomes our immovable standard. But let me warn you, when this becomes the immovable standard, those that have the doctrine of culture, they are going to say to you that you are old-fashioned, that you are out of touch, and that you are irrelevant. You answer to your creator. This is the third goal of empowerment. Number four is to speak the truth. It says, verse 15, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now, there's two things that stand out here. It says that we are to have the ability to speak the truth in love, and we need to submit ourselves under the headship of Christ. Let me address the first, uh, the first point. There is this ability to speak the truth in love. Now, we live in a society where people are very, very, very excellent in giving their opinion. Every reality show is about someone giving their opinion about marriage, about life, about love. But very few people are good at speaking the truth in love because they don't necessarily know the truth. Or if they do know the truth, they do, don't do it in love. As I was growing up, the moral majority, some of you guys remember that, they were uh, Jerry Falwell, moral majority. They were constantly railing on homosexuality. That was like the pet sin of the moral majority and the Teletubbies and all the things that came out and, and how homosexuality is in this and homosexuality is in this and anybody that's a homosexual is and they had a whole litany of things that they believed. My friends, I don't believe there was any love in there. See, here's the deal with Christ. 
Jesus says to all people, whether they are of different religious beliefs, of whether they have these cultural mindsets that might be wrong, or some of them might be right, but wherever we are, Jesus says, I want you to come to me. And this is what he says in Matthew 11. Jesus says, take your yoke on, uh, take your, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from Jesus, for he is gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. Why is it that the social rejects of society, the the prostitutes, the, the people that came from a sordid background, why were they always attracted to Jesus? Because of this. He had this beautiful way of speaking the truth in love. 1 Corinthians states what happens when people are taught Jesus. When people are taught Jesus, slowly God changes them from the inside out. And he shows them what their sins are. I love this passage in Corinthians. It says this. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, idolaters, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. God calls sin, sin. But then he says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And what God is calling the church to do is speak the truth in love. But we're also to learn to submit our lives under the headship of Christ. The church is the head, Christ is the head of the church. And every person that comes into the church, we ask ourselves a very simple question. Am I willing to entrust my life to Jesus? If I do, then I submit to his guidance. I submit to his knowledge, to his doctrine. And here's the last thing, and we close with this. The last goal is to grow. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which is uh, joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, this last goal is growth. I don't know a pastor in town that doesn't want their church to grow. But please understand, the marks of growth is not just numeric. The marks of growth is that we operate in our gifts, that we mature in Christ, and that we realize that we have been empowered by Christ. We don't need somebody to come and tell you to serve here or to do this or to do that. We do it because the Spirit of God is so impressing on our hearts that we need to work for Him that we start doing this spontaneously. And I love it when there are little fires that start at Mission View that Steve Marshall had nothing to do with because someone saw a need and said, I'm going to start a little Bible study to help bring understanding to these people. This need in the inner city, I'm going to help out with it. And when these fires happen, it happens because the body is working as it should. In closing, I want you to think about 
how God has empowered you. And so the question is, have you discovered your gifts? I'm at the bottom of your outline, there's a, just a, a, some really quick things there. Pray about it. Just pray about your gifting. Ask God to show it. Study the scriptures. What we're doing right now is helping you in that because we're taking a whole month to study. Measure your desires and abilities because often our gifts are in that. And on your way out, there is a spiritual gift assessment test that you can grab. Uh, I think these are good because they help us identify what our desires and our abilities are. And sometimes our gifts rest in that. And then finally, what is God blessing? What's God blessing in your life? Where's the joy? If there's joy there, there's probably the working of your gifts. We're going to close with the song, Ever Love. And so I would like you to stand right now and I'm going to close this in prayer and then we're going to sing this song together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the time that we've had together. I thank you for the teaching of your word and how beautiful your word is. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to ever love you because of all that you have done for us. It is only fitting that that is the response of our worship is that we declare our love for you and that we would desire nothing more than to do that for all eternity. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.